Acts 20. Today we will cover verses 17 to 38, but I'll begin just by zooming in to verse 25 to 28. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. The word of God says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Let's pray. Father, this is such a powerful passage, inspired by your spirit, written down by your servant Luke, preached by your servant Paul. It is timeless. It is for our good. It is for your glory. And so we pray together as one church that you would open our eyes to the truth that we would know who we are in Christ, that we would understand the weight of this passage and apply it to our lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know that we live in a cursed world. If we did not live in a cursed world, we probably would not need to lock our doors at night. We wouldn't need to keep our money in a bank. We wouldn't have to build a fence around our garden, keep the rodents out. But we do these things because we know that robbers and thieves exist. We know that hungry rodents exist and they have no regard for your tomatoes. We know that evil people exist. It's dangerous out there. So we protect that which is valuable to us. Have you ever been asked to uh, sit inside a car while a loved one or a friend runs into the store and you have to watch for the meter maid because you don't have any quarters? I know that you can use a credit card now, but this is the childhood I grew up with. And you need to be ready, right? You need to be alert because as soon as you see that meter maid coming down the block, you need to flag her down and say, my friend will be right out. Please don't give me a ticket. You were told to watch the car. And the fact is, I think whether that you can relate to that or not, we can all relate to the need to, to care for something valuable. House sitting, babysitting, pet sitting, holding on to a family heirloom. When it comes to caring for things, the, the urgency of our care is heightened by the value of what we're looking after. The urgency of our care is heightened by the value of what we're looking after. And so a kid might put $5 in a piggy bank, but $5,000 or $50,000 might be better off in a FDIC-insured institutional bank. Not quite under your pillow. You wouldn't pet sit the same way you babysit. I think for most people. I mean, some people do treat their dogs like, like babies, but the value of the item or the person that you are guarding will rise with the urgency with which you guard that person or item and so on. 
And in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is handing over something extremely valuable. Something that he's worked for and toiled for, for years, has helped grow the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus. And in this Paul's farewell speech, he is handing over the church to the elders of Ephesus that they would take care of her and protect her from harm. And I pray as we consider the the weight of this today, that we will come away with a greater appreciation of the value of the church and of her need to be protected. Let's look at the context so we can understand where Paul's coming from. Look with me in verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, if you go one verse up to our previous text in verse 16, it tells us, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul really wanted to go to Jerusalem. He had spent years in Ephesus. He is now 40 miles closer to Jerusalem. There are no planes and no trains back then. But he still wants to say goodbye to Ephesus. So rather than going back 40 miles up to Ephesus, he calls the Ephesian elders to come meet him in Miletus. So he's bringing together the pastors that he left in Ephesus 40 miles away. It's sort of like a pastor's conference. No other church members but the elders. We don't know how many elders, but there were several at least. And he's going to charge them with these words. Skip over now to verse 36 to 38. Verse 36 to 38. The Bible says, And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So you see, this is Paul's farewell message. If you've ever had to say goodbye to a loved one, that's what's happening here. Paul had brought the faith to these men. Through Paul, these men believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and their sins were forgiven. For years, Paul taught them. He raised them up. He appointed them as elders over the church. And now he's leaving. And very likely, he says to them, You won't see my face again. So that's the context of what's happening here. Paul is giving a farewell message to the elders at the Ephesian church. And he is saying to them, take care of the church. I've invested so much in her. I know how vulnerable she is. And I'm now trusting in you, appointed pastors, elders. Watch out. Protect her care for her. What Paul does here is very much a mirror of what Jesus does to his disciples when he's going to the cross and he says to them, and he, over weeks he, he teaches them, I'm leaving. I'm going to the cross. I'm going back to my father. And here's what you need to do in my absence. Paul is mirroring his Lord here. 
knowing that he is probably not going to come back from Jerusalem. He might even die in Jerusalem. And we'll see what he says about that in just a moment. And he hands it over to the Ephesian elders. In this text, there are at least three things, or two things, about the church's value. There's the church's value and the church's vulnerability that testify to why it is so urgent, why it is so important that these elders take care of the church. First, because of how valuable she is, and secondly, because of how vulnerable she is. And I think if I were to ask you, does the church have value in your life? You would say yes. And is the church vulnerable? Perhaps you would say, I think so. But this text will highlight those two things in such a powerful way. So I hope the Lord shows us the value and vulnerability of the church and then why she ought to be protected. Let's begin with the church's value. Verse 18. Now Paul is giving his speech. What does he first say? Verse 18. He said, when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now look at verse 33. We'll skip. We'll come back to the other verses, but skip to verse 33 to 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's so much that Paul says there that testifies to just how valuable the church is. The church is valuable. And you can see on your outline uh, on the screen there that the church's value demands integrity. That the church's value demands self-sacrifice. And that is because the church's value is the blood of Jesus. Let's uh, go through these things um, briefly. The church's value demands integrity. 
Did you notice how much Paul spoke about himself here? It's not because he's conceited, but he's, he's defending his actions. He's saying, look what I've done. I came here to Ephesus, and I didn't ask you for a penny. I worked with Aquila and Priscilla. I made tents. I worked with my hands. You can't accuse me of greed or of anything else, any false pretense. I gave you the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back anything. And what I did, I did publicly and privately. In the synagogue, house to house. Paul was the real deal. Paul was a man of integrity. Integrity means wholeness, sincerity, authenticity. When you look at Paul, you get what you get. He's not hiding something. He's not a phony. He's not a fake. He's the real deal. Now, we take that for granted, right? But in our day and age, we are surrounded by leaders who lack integrity. Political leaders, institutional leaders, celebrities, even, sadly, religious leaders. Lacking integrity. Saying one thing, doing another. Using the word of God for selfish gain. Or in the world of politics, it has become so synonymous with lying. We don't trust our politicians, do we? We are starving for integrity. But the church is so valuable that she demands integrity. Her leaders and her members ought to walk with integrity. And I see a few things about Paul here. Three things about his integrity. One was his faithful service. Two, his total message. And three was his generous work ethic. Paul was a faithful servant. Verse 19 tells us that he suffered on behalf of the Ephesians with humility, with tears, and with trials. The value of the church, in Paul's eyes, was worth keep on going even in the midst of opposition. How many of us would cower the moment we were made fun of or mocked or ostracized for our faith? Paul is so much more in Paul's life. He he experienced uh, shipwreck. He experienced whipping. He's experienced imprisonment. He experienced a riot. He was stoned almost to death in order to carry out the gospel. And Paul never quit. He was a faithful servant to the end. He was a man of integrity. There are some statistics today that have come out that say that about 40%, that's almost half, 40% of pastors in America have either quit or strongly considered quitting. And many of us, right, very few of us have ever stayed in the same job. My father became a mailman after high school and retired a mailman. But that's rare in our day and age. You think about the first job you had, perhaps an hourly job at a fast food restaurant or retail, and you probably didn't think, I'm, I'm going to be here the rest of my life. And why? Because we didn't place the same value on what we did back then with what we thought we would do one day. We saw those part-time jobs as a stepping stool to our ultimate careers. But once we found that which we valued, we stayed. But Paul valued the church. 
So no matter what came his way, and remember, we're talking about a man who is educated, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He could do something else with his life and be comfortable. But he chose to be a faithful servant, a man of integrity, because of the value of God's people. Secondly, his total message. The church is worthy of being told the whole truth. As, as you hear in the courtroom, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? So help me God. Paul says in verse 20 to 21, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Paul tells us that he preached in the house and in public to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He gave the whole counsel of God to everyone. He didn't have one message for people here and a different message here. He didn't try to soften the blow over here and then give these people a harder message. He didn't try to hide the fact that some of the things that the gospel demands are hard to hear. Just like Jesus said things, the hard sayings of Jesus. So Paul said things that were hard to hear. Some of us are tempted to hide those hard things, aren't we? We'll talk about the love of God, but we don't really want to talk about the wrath of God. We talk about salvation in Christ, but it's hard to say Jesus is the only way. It's hard for us sometimes to talk about the reality of eternal condemnation or the Bible's sexual ethic, which is very unpopular today. But when you value the church, when you value God's people, you tell the truth. You, you give the encouraging words and you give the words of rebuke. You give the words of instruction and you give the words of correction. Because the, the church is worth the truth. And nothing but the truth. And Paul reiterates that in verse 26 and 27 where he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. That doesn't mean that Paul's perfect. It simply means he knows when he lays his head down at night, he has told the truth. He's not shrunk back an iota of the whole counsel of God. The church demands our integrity. In a day in which we are not sure if our co-workers, our bosses, people in the world, our politicians are telling us the truth, we, we question everything because we've been lied to so much. How refreshing to know that there are still people out there for the cause of Christ who will tell you the truth. Thirdly, Paul's integrity is seen in his generous work ethic as he, as he mentions in uh, verses 33 to 35, that he didn't covet anyone's silver or gold, how he ministered with his hands. He didn't take any money for what he did as a missionary and as a church planter. Now, just for clarification, in other parts of the New Testament that Paul himself wrote, he does mention that ministers are entitled to being paid. And Paul himself did receive help freely from other churches. But in this context, Paul did not want to give an inch that there was any room for an impression that he was in it for the money. And there were many people back in those days who would use witchcraft and magic to try to garner a crowd in order that they would get money. And there were many false Christs and, and false teachers out there. And Paul wants to separate himself from them. I'm not in it for the money. I will work and make tents so long as I can preach the gospel. That is a man of integrity. It's one of the poorest testimonies to our faith today. 
When Christianity has leaders who are marked by extravagance, who prey on the weak, people on TBN that tell poor and vulnerable people to send them money so they can pretty much take a label off of a bottle of water like this and put a blank label and take a Sharpie marker and write holy water and send it back through the mail. These things happen. There are men who consider themselves ministers of God who are flying around in private jets, luxury cars and mansions, while the people that they're supposed to be serving are living in poverty and they are living off of their poverty. Paul says in verse 34, or verse uh, 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Then he quotes Jesus who says, It's more blessed to give than receive. A man of integrity in the church is a giver. That's why one of the qualifications for elders is hospitality. Not someone who just comes in and teaches the flock for an hour and goes home to his mansion. The gospel is not for sale. And charlatans will have their day before God in judgment. But true leaders must be men of integrity who work hard and who help the weak. I hope you see what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's not bragging on himself. He is simply giving a model for these Ephesian elders as he's handing off the church. He's saying, follow my example. Be men of integrity. The church is worth your integrity. If you lose your integrity, you will lose your church. Because Paul valued the church. So he lived among the church with integrity, with his faithful service, his total message, his generous work ethic. Brothers and sisters, the church, which is the bride of Christ, deserves this. In a day where institutions are not trusted, where state and federal leaders are synonymous with liars, while it seems that every day there's yet another scandal in the church at large, may we be a church that is known for our integrity. May the church wave the flag of integrity for the glory of God. Secondly, the church is value, the value of the church demands self-sacrifice. You sacrifice for the things that you place a value on, don't you? When you really want to get that degree, you will sacrifice hours upon hours of study to get that degree, to get that job. Think about your life. What is it that you Focus the most on what has cost you the most money, the most hours, the most miles driven or walked. It's typically the things that we place the highest value on. Well, Paul gives us an example that the church must have a high place of value in our lives. In verses 22 to 25, Paul recounts, um, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I don't know what's going to happen. He says, the Spirit of God didn't tell me everything, but the Spirit of God says in verse 23 that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. How would you like that? God gave you a revelation, and the only thing he told you is that as you're traveling, you'll be imprisoned and you'll suffer affliction. I think my first um, response would be, no, thank you, Lord. I've got to go the other way. 
But Paul doesn't do that, does he? The Bible says he hastened to go to Jerusalem. He's telling the Ephesian elders, I'm leaving, and the Holy Spirit told me that as I'm traveling, I'm going to be imprisoned, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to go anyway, because God told me to go. <laughs> it's like, so matter of fact, because he's such a faithful servant. See, Paul says in Philippians 3.10, a verse that we quote so often, but we often leave out the last part of the verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wants to know Christ so much, he wants to be in unison with not only his power, but his sufferings. Paul saw sufferings as a way to be more like Christ. So he embraced sufferings. Even when the Spirit of God himself told him, as you travel, you will find affliction and imprisonment. Paul says, okay, bring it on. Paul, unlike many of us, is not thinking of his own convenience. He's not putting his own comfort in front of his troubles. How different is that from today's thinking? The church is often at the bottom of our priorities, isn't it? We sacrifice the church at the altar of our precious schedules. Yet we find here that we ought to sacrifice our schedules, even our lives, for the church. See what Paul says there in verse 24? I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Paul's life in establishing this church at Ephesus, he stood face to face with death. And he was willing to go to Jerusalem to face it again. That only makes sense. It only makes sense if you place a value on the church. And what is that value? What is so great about the church that it would both demand our integrity and our sacrifice? Well, Paul answers that again in verse 28. To care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing else that Paul could have used to describe the value of the church that would supersede what he just said. And we need to park there for a moment to understand what he means by that. There's no higher value in the universe than the blood of Jesus Christ. His own blood. Verse 28. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice that God and the blood are in the same sentence. It's not that God the Father shed his blood on the cross, but it's that Jesus, the Son of God, is God. And so the blood that flowed from that cross that covers your sin and mine is the blood of God himself. Because God assumed a human nature for you and me. And he shed his blood. You know what Peter says? You don't have to turn there, but Peter... The apostle in 1 Peter says this about you, if you're a believer in Christ. He says that you should know that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You are worth more than gold. You are worth more than silver, diamonds, money, billions of dollars. Well, put a price on it. What's the highest valued thing you could think of in this world today? Nothing comes close to the blood of Christ. And it's the blood of Christ that bought your soul. It's the blood of Christ that obtained the church. This is the church that he purchased with his own blood. You say to a neighbor, please watch my house while I'm on vacation. Because the house costs you 300000 Or we say to the banker, please watch my portfolio. Because this is my investment for, for retirement. For those 20 some odd years I get to, to enjoy. Or we say to a loved one, please guard this pocket watch. It's a family heirloom. Passed down through generations. It has sentimental value. And it's, it costs a lot of money. But Paul says to the Ephesian elders, watch this church with God, which God has purchased with his own blood. You can't raise the bar any higher than that. When you understand the cosmically high value of the church, then you will see that your relationship to the church necessitates your integrity and your sacrifice. But when you feel as though the church does not need my integrity, and I'm not sacrificing for the church, then you're in effect saying, I don't value the church the way God values the church. May God use this text to open our eyes to the value of the church of Jesus Christ. And may we treasure her more and more. The church is valuable, but she is also vulnerable. She's vulnerable. And when I say vulnerable, I don't mean inherently weak. I simply mean subject to attack. Look with me in verse 29 to 31. This is after Paul says, the church was purchased by the blood of God. Then he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is what Paul says right after he says, care for the church. Here's the church. God purchased her with his own blood because when I leave, she's going to be attacked. She's vulnerable to attack both from within and without. Speaking of being left in cars, a couple years ago, I was with a coworker in Newark, and many people in that school where I worked really liked to go to Whole Foods. It was kind of a hipster environment. And um, Whole Foods has this like snack uh, salad bar that's like so awesome, apparently. Um, I was with a friend, someone that I used to work with, someone that you know, someone that might be here today. I'll let you guess who that was. 
He used to work with me at this school. And, and he and I were in the car. And then um, as it is Newark, there's nowhere to park. And so the idea was for me to watch the car. So I sat in my friend's car as he went in to get food from Whole Foods. Well, the car was left in a vulnerable position. Not by a meter, but in a truck-loading zone. I was supposed to watch the car. Looking around, police cars, anyone's going to make me move, then I would just move the car. But what I didn't realize what would happen is I looked down, I guess maybe I was looking at my phone, whatever it is, I wasn't on guard for that moment, and all of a sudden, smash. A truck, because it's a truck-loading zone, backed into my friend's car while I was sitting in it and damaged the front of the car. And I'm sorry, brother, for that. Thankfully, my friend was not too upset because uh, the car was already deteriorating. But when, he, when I then got in the car, I, I, I asked the truck driver, like, what, what happened? You didn't see me. And he says, uh, no. I mean, it's a truck after all. He didn't have a, a mirror in the back of the truck. And guess where I was? I was in a truck loading zone. It's not really his fault. So, got in the car, drove a block or two away. And when my friend came out, I said, um, a truck ran into your car while I was sitting in it. And he thought I was joking. Until I showed him the car. And he saw I was not joking. The car was left in a vulnerable position. And I dropped the ball. I wasn't looking out for all the ways in which it could be attacked. And likewise, the church stands in a sense of vulnerability. As we are living in this cursed world, in the already not yet tension, there are enemies that will come against the church. And we must be on guard. Brothers and sisters... You ought to care for the church because of her value, but you also must care for the church because of her vulnerability. If you treat the church with indifference and apathy, you will fail to realize the danger that you're putting her in. Paul says in verse 29, there will be wolves that come into the flock from the outside. And in verse 30, he says, probably even more tragically, there will be some that come from among you. Those attacks come from without and within. Wolves from outside. False teachers. There's nothing new under the sun. You know that you can go to a Christian bookstore or the Christian section at Barnes & Noble and you can find all sorts of heretics on the shelves, but there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus warned his disciples about this. Paul warned Timothy about this. The Apostle John warned Christians about those who deny Jesus Christ. There is nothing new under the sun. As long as Christianity has existed, there have been false teachers. As long as there are flowers, there are weeds. And the wolves, they don't care about you. Paul says in verse 29, not sparing the flock. Wolves love themselves. Wolves are messengers of Satan. And Paul knows this. That's why he says, for three years, day and night, I've warned you with tears. Because they're coming for you. And you must be ready. 
So when he entrusts these elders with the church, it's not like, like dropping off your child at a high security, baby proof, sterilized daycare center where only approved, vetted adults can enter once they sign in and they have a past, a background check. This is more like, quick, the enemy is attacking. Take my small child and protect her while I go fight. That's the urgency with which Paul is carrying this message of taking care of the church. It is that serious. He is saying to the elders, you are being entrusted with something very valuable and vulnerable. And there are wolves that desire to eat the sheep. And then verse 30, it gets even worse. He says, there will be some that come from among yourselves. Remember, he's talking to only the elders, right? The, the Ephesian church is back in, where are they? they're in Ephesus. So he could not only be talking about Ephesian members, but he's talking to elders. Among you, there might arise false teachers that would draw away disciples. Right? Jesus had many enemies without, did he not? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees, the Romans. But Jesus also had Judas. He also had enemies within. Someone who shared meals, who sang the same songs, who went on missions with the disciples. There will be enemies from within. And those enemies will twist things. See in verse 30? They will twist things. They will twist scripture. They will teach false things. And they will draw away disciples. They will divide the church. They will convince gullible people that they are worthy to follow. And those other leaders, they're just corrupt. So follow me instead. And so Paul is warning these elders. Be alert. He doesn't say, if you, if you guys pastor well, you'll be free from attack. Don't worry. No, he says wolves will come. And false leaders will arise. The church, the bride of Christ, precious, chosen, bought with the blood. She is valuable and she is vulnerable. But I don't want to leave you without hope today. Because God has also provided for us a vehicle through which the church can be protected. Paul's, Paul's farewell speech is not hopeless he is not saying to the Ephesian elders, when I leave, it's all going to be destroyed. He tells them, be alert. Because of the enemies, if you are alert, you will protect that which is precious in God's sight. So verse 32. He says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Who's Paul talking to again? He's talking to the elders. And he's saying to them, I'm entrusting you with this and I'm commending you to God so that you, elders, will be able to protect this precious flock from harm. God You've heard this phrase before, doesn't always call the equipped, but he equips the called. If God has given the elders this holy responsibility to care for the church, even when she's vulnerable to attack, 
Then God will equip those elders so that they can care for the church and protect her from harm. So it's not hopeless. The Spirit of God is speaking through Paul and tells us that there is a way for the blood-bought bride to be protected. And that is this. Faithful elders, led by God, equipped by the word of grace. Faithful elders, led by God, equipped with the word of grace. I mentioned earlier, or at least last month, that this month you'll hear a lot about elders. That's not something we planned. Pastor Joe last week preached on following the leader. If you didn't hear that sermon, by the way, highly recommend listening to it on sermon audio. At the end of the month, Pastor Johnny will preach on the qualifications for elders. And it just so happens because he's in 1 Timothy. And I just so happen to be in Acts chapter 20, which is about elders. So this wasn't some conspiracy we got together and said, we've got to teach them about elders. But for some reason, the Lord is directing us to this. Elders are not your saviors, but God uses them to protect the church. I want to just break down those three things. Faithful elders led by God, equipped by the word of grace. Number one, faithful elders. Verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves, that's the elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Just as you ought to be careful about whom you allow to guard your money and whom you allow to babysit for your kids, so the elders who have this holy responsibility to protect the church cannot just be anyone. He must meet the qualifications. And we'll hear more about that at the end of May. But suffice it to say that when you look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, it's not necessarily that your elder must have great public oratory skills or be someone with a dynamic personality of a CEO. 95% of everything that an elder ought to be amounts to character. He must be humble, mature, not greedy, not indulgent, honest, patient, and able to teach. Not like many of the leaders in this world. In this text, we find all three functions of the office of elder. We find the word elder uh, back in verse number uh, 17. Elder just means mature man. I grew up in a church tradition where we never used the word elder. So I always thought that was just for you know, older people. An elder is older. Like the Mormons, they, they walk on the streets. They're like 18 years old. And like, hi, I'm Elder Joe. Like, you're elder? Really? But elder doesn't have to do with age. It has to do with maturity. An elder ought to be a mature, godly man in the midst of the church. But they are also referred to as pastors. That's why in verse 28, he calls the the church the flock. So pastors are under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Christ, pastors must feed the flock the word of God. We must guide the flock in making godly decisions based upon the word of God. We must warn the flock, just like when a sheep is going the wrong way into the thorns, the pastors are to take the rod and the staff to correct and guide the sheep. And the pastors ought to protect the flock from the harm of the wolves. These men are elders and they are pastors. And thirdly, they are bishops. 
We don't use that word bishop in our tradition. You may see that in the Catholic Church or in some of the Pentecostal churches. But the word bishop is found in verse 28, where it says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the Greek word episkopos. Epi means all around. Skopos comes from where we get scope, telescope, microscope. That simply means someone who sees everything. Someone who watches over. Now, some traditions like to have three offices. These are the elders, these are the pastors, and these are the bishops. But biblically speaking, these are three functions of one man. That's why the the church really has two offices. Elder, slash, pastor, slash, overseer, and deacon. The elder must fill all three of these things. He must be mature. He's an elder. He must be a shepherd. He's a pastor. He must be a bishop. He's an overseer. He guards the gate. He guards who comes in as a member. And he also leads the church in discipline when necessary. These men fill this threefold role, become a vehicle of protection for the church against enemies without and within. But they must be led by God. Verse 32 again tells us, I commend you to God. They don't do this in their own strength. That's why it's in verse 28, before Paul says, care for the flock, what does he say? He says, care for yourselves. A pastor must watch himself. He must spend time with the Lord. He must mortify sin in his own life. He must check his doctrine against the word of God. He must delight in the presence of the Lord for himself. Faithful pastors ought to be so filled with the Holy Spirit and then minister out of the overflow of their own filling. The reason why Paul commends them to God is to remind them that whatever success you have in ministry is not of you, but it's of God. We elders, we are simply instruments and no more. And I want to remind you of this because previous to this, I talked a lot about the church's vulnerability. Can I just also remind you of the promises that God gave to his church? Jesus said, upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The church will not ultimately die. God will always have his people, whether they're a remnant or whether they're popular. Here we are 2,000 years later, and the church has gone through every danger, toil, and snare. And in every continent in this world, and we are still here, still praising the Lord, because God promised the church will never die. But... Local expressions of the church can die. In Revelation, Jesus does burn out the candlesticks of unfaithful churches. Local churches can apostatize and divide. Some of us have experienced that in our past. So while the church universal will never die, the church local remains vulnerable. And our church's success Our church's health, our church's protection is a work of God. He gets all the glory, not the pastors. So the vehicle of protection are godly elders led by God. And thirdly, they must be equipped by the word of grace. Right? Verse verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and and to the word of his grace. 
Most commentators agree that when Paul says the word of his grace, that's just shorthand for gospel. That's, that's everything the gospel entails. That God is holy. That we are sinners. That we cannot save ourselves and we only deserve condemnation. But that in his love and mercy, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. To bear the penalty that you and I deserve. And he invites us to turn from our sin and believe in him alone for salvation. The gospel is Jesus rising from the grave on the third day and living to make intercession for us. And that by faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus rituals, not faith plus money, but faith alone in Christ, our sins are gone. We become born again. That is the good news of the gospel. And Paul loves to address it with the word grace. Because Paul in his previous life was such a legalist. Everything was about good works. Do this, do this, do this. Do this and live. Follow this formula. Don't eat those meats. Wear this. And then God will have favor with you. And everything is just flipped upside down with the gospel. Which says, you can't do this and live. So come to Christ. He did it for you. That is grace. The unmerited favor of God. And if pastors are equipped with this gospel of grace, then they will help protect their flock from her vulnerable state. Because Paul tells them, he promises them in verse 32, this word of grace is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is that which gives us access to the Father. The gospel obliterates our sin. It is the cause of our growth in holiness. It is the driving force behind all that we do. Notice that Paul just laid the smackdown on them. He said the church is, is purchased by the blood and she's vulnerable, but he doesn't give them a 12-step program to try to protect her. He just says, if you have God and you have the gospel, you have what you need. Oh, that we would get back to the basics of the gospel and trusting that the gospel will have its work among us, that it will do, as verse 32 says, build us up and give us that inheritance in the saints. Everything we teach must come back to this glorious gospel of grace that we would not live in condemnation, but serve God with peace in our hearts. And so, Paul's elder meeting in Miletus ends with this. Having recounted his own integrity and his own sacrifice, then entrusting these elders to care for the church at Ephesus. He reminds them of the church's value, but also of her vulnerability. And he charges them, watch yourself and watch the flock. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace. And then in verse 36 to 38, it says, Having said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, and being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. There's so much in here, brothers and sisters, but I would just ask you this one question as application. Does your view of the church align with God's view of her?
I mean, you could probably anticipate. You've probably been thinking about it the whole time. You know where a sermon like this would lead. You know what your pastor wants to tell you. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, now he's going to tell us we need to be more engaged in the church, answer our emails, come to Tuesday nights, come to evangelism, get involved in each other's lives, pray for the missionaries, pray, pray. You're not far off. I do think that this demands that we check our priorities and ask questions as to why we might be disengaged, why we don't know our missionaries, why we don't know sometimes what's happening or what the prayer requests of our brothers and sisters are, why we think that Tuesday prayer meeting is just not for me, I don't need to come, not a big deal, Bible studies. I think it's good to take inventory. And wonder, do I value the church in my life? But to get there, we can't have shame and guilt. I can't shame you, guilt you. Why didn't you come? Why? I think any spirit indwelt believer would want to, to participate in the church, but it's not going to happen by law. Paul said it I commend you to the word of grace, not by law. And so what's going to have to happen for us to get to a place where we as a church are fully engaged in appreciating her value? Our minds have to be renewed. We must align our thinking with God's thinking and reject worldly thinking. We must see the church how God sees her as both valuable and vulnerable. And when I say the church, I don't just mean the congregation, I mean you as an individual. And I don't just mean you as an individual, I mean the congregation. See, we're part of one another. We're members of one another. We're in the same body. We're in the same flock. We are the sheep of his pasture. And yes, Paul gave this charge to elders, but by consequence, it's something for all of us. You know there are things in your life that are vulnerable, right? Missing time at your job has consequences. Missing time at the gym has consequences. If you miss time studying, it has consequences. But why is it that missing time at church doesn't seem to be on our list of priorities? Christ's blood was not shed to obtain your school or your gym or your job. I think we have it backwards. I think we live in fear. I will lose money. I will lose that degree. I will lose. And we don't think about the vulnerability of brothers and sisters who need you to be in their lives. Sheep are vulnerable without the flock. A sheep wanders away from the flock. He or she is more vulnerable to attack than the one who is with the flock. Thus, we should value the church more. But don't be tempted to read into this some modern idea of the church and say, I, yeah, fine. In a sentimental way, I love all of God's people around the world. I care for the church. Paul's talking to Ephesian elders about Ephesian Christians at the church of Ephesus, a local body. He is saying of the church at Ephesus, that church was purchased by the blood of Christ. It is about our local church. What if if pastors, and some do, had that same idea of, well, as long as I have some relationship with Christians in a general sense, 
I'm fulfilling the scripture. I fear for those pastors who have such a far-ranging impact through social media or, or YouTube that I wonder, like, how are you pastoring a church if you're preparing these videos for all these people all the time? I recently spoke with a, a brother who has been going to this church that he moved to, and he's not yet a member. And one of the things that bothered him was that his pastor, when he gets up to the pulpit, even though he preaches beautiful, expositional theologically faithful sermons likes to remind the people of the church I am not here to be your friend I'm not here to be your friend in that church no one goes to the pastor's house if you do it's because maybe you're being raised to be a pastor I fear for that kind of mentality in Acts 4.23 after Peter and John were released from prison it says they went to their friends And reported what the chief priests have said. Jesus himself. Jesus, the chief shepherd, said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus was a friend of sinners who laid down his life for his friends. He's the great shepherd in our example. How can any man who considers himself an under-shepherd of Jesus, refuse to be friends with his people. So whether you're an elder or not, all church members must walk in close community with one another, valuing one another, protecting one another in Christ-like love. Brothers and sisters, we're in this together. And when we are united together and participate in the church together, protected by godly elders who are led by God and equipped by the word of his grace, not only will we be protected from wolves, we will, as verse 32 promises, be built up to receive the inheritance among all the saints. And thus, I simply want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the value of the bride of Christ. This is your body, your family, your flock, and she is purchased by the blood of Christ. Oh, we are not perfect. We have blemishes, but we are purchased by the blood of Christ. The church is precious to God. She is to be treated with care. She is not to be slandered or undermined or ignored. And you, you are part of this body. If you've tuned me out a while ago, please come back in for just a moment here. I want you to know, believer, you are precious in the sight of God. Because you are covered by the blood of Christ. You were redeemed, not with silver or gold. You're more valuable than that. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are worthy of protection. Because you belong to God. Do you see how much he cares for you? How much he loves you? He did not even spare his own son to get to you, to have a relationship with you. The church might be many things. But at the end of the day, she is what God says that she is. And you and I might be weak. We are sinners. We are unworthy. But our worth is found in Christ, whose blood has ransomed us. I'll end with the the words of this song. My worth is not in what I own, 
not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Amen.